Good afternoon, everybody. This will be uh, fun. This is Mudslide, actually part three, since we did part two yesterday. So we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to repeat it. We'll cover some same ground, but I think we'll try to, we'll try to mix it up a little bit. So again, I'm Kai Wright. Uh, I'm from New York, WNYC, um, and uh, where, among other things, I host uh, a podcast series called The United States of Anxiety. We launched that in uh, the summer of 2016, which seems like eons and eons and eons ago. Um, and you know, and our goal for that season was to you know do something that to, to, to figure out one where Trump supporters were coming from, what their life experience was, um, how it informed their politics, and um, you know, and what was happening in the immigrant communities that were living alongside those folks. And it, it is really quite striking to me that um, uh, that it feels like uh, so so long ago that those were unanswered questions to me. I, I, I don't know that I, I have have much curiosity left for, for, for those things. But in any case, I kept saying this thing that uh, no matter what happens in this election, listen, no matter what happens in this election, it's not about the election. Election day is going to come and go. But when election day is over, we're still going to be in these issues. The stuff that has been revealed uh, in the course of this campaign is going to be with us. And, you know, sure enough, uh, it, it is with us. Um, so that's what we're here to, to hash out. Uh, let me first ask, how many people in the room identify themselves or think of themselves as journalists <laughs> um, <laughs> or people who are in some way trying to make sense of current events? You know, um, I, I just wanted to get a sense of that because I think, you know, one, I'm, I'm new to the conference and I don't think everybody here would think of themselves that way. And, I, you know, that's who this panel of folks is and where this conversation will be coming from. So I just wanted to get a sense of like where people were coming from in the room. Um, but so a lot of you, and so you'll you'll know that you know it, the past year has included a, a great deal of soul searching for uh, for those of us who think of our work that way. Um, it has certainly uh, caused me to do soul searching. You know, I, I it it's feels clear to me that we're at a moment of reckoning, um, and I'm trying to figure out sort of how I show up for that and for, for what comes next. And so I think the, the place I want to start um, uh, before we get into some nitty gritty details is, is asking each of you up here is, I, I don't believe that, it didn't, that you didn't ask these questions. So what in this moment, what in this moment really caused you to evaluate, reevaluate your work? Or did it cause you to reevaluate your work in some way? Surely in some way it caused you to reevaluate your work. And Lee Tai, I want to start with you. What did Trump's election do? This, and I want to be broader than Trump's election. I mean, maybe it was the, the moment of Trump's election, but, but the, the sort of collective experience we have all been through, um, uh, or we're going through around this time last year, um, did, it, did it spark any reevaluation for you, and, and, if, and if so, how? So for the bulk of my career, I've been a cultural journalist, um, producing Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson and a few other things at WNYC. And I started producing Intercepted with a small team the day after uh, Trump's inauguration. But leading up to that point, I had to make this decision, did I want to take this new job um, producing a weekly news show from a progressive, very outspoken, left-leaning organization? and. Um, I took the job before knowing that Trump would win, but I have to say that his election definitely um, invigorated me and made me feel doubly committed to, to what we're doing uh, on Intercepted, and um, it, it feels like the right thing for this moment. 
I mean, am I making too much of the change? I mean, I, I know of many people who said, you know what, I have to I, I have to dive into politics deeper than I am now in my work. Or people who said, I got to get out of this politics mm -hmm. thing um, <laughs> in, in my work. Am I, am I making too much of that? Or was that where you were at? I mean, I, I could see how people who had already been there would just be throwing their hands up and saying, we, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, it's been a theme here of was, was my work all for nothing? Why did, why did this happen after all the work I've been doing to try to prevent this sort of thing? But then I think that there was room for people like me to <laughs> newly to get into this and to, to not give up and to still keep working on it. Al, uh, what about, you know, as I said, uh, the premise of the first season of our U.S. of Anxiety was, United States of Anxiety was, oh, I got to figure out where these people are coming from, and I, mm -hmm. and I, and I no longer feel quite so compelled to do so. Um, and you have, throughout your career, done some, uh, you know, you did State of the Reunion, you, you, mm -hmm. you have done work that is really about sort of trying to reach out and talk to people from a different perspective. Did, has that, re have you reevaluated that at all in the last year? No, I've, I've reevaluated re it in the sense of, um, in the sense of, you know, I think that uh, uh, what I want to do is kind of push against like the narrative that we, that, that is developing in the country. As, as in, um, you know, one of the things that you see a lot when you read um, anything, but I, one comes to mind like reading the Times when they go to these places and they want to understand the Trump voters and they frame it in this way like the Trump voters are real America. And that just really pisses me off um, because there are as many ways to be American as there are Americans. Um, and, and so I, I think what I've been thinking a lot about is like, how do you reframe it? How do, you, how do we get away from this idea that people who live in liberal places are in a bubble and somehow another people who live in conservative places are not in a bubble? Um, we, we, we all have our bubbles. One of the last episodes that we worked on with State of the Reunion was called The, the Sorting of America. And we looked at like how in America today you can live in a community that reflects your values. You can have your children go to a school that reflects your values. You can um, only watch TV and listen to radio that reflects your values. And a lot of that's happening in conservative places. A lot of that's happening in liberal places. Um, and so how do we like, you know, poke holes in both of those and really think about, uh, you know, what that means? That, that's also like pushing against, like I live in the Bay right now and, um, you know, there's a lot of outrage about Trump in the Bay uh, now and, I th and, and, you know, like this big push about being like a uh, sanctuary city and all that type of stuff. And I'm like, that's great. But at, at the same time, like the homelessness problem in San Francisco is off the charts. And so it's like, you, 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 you know, on the liberal side, we say this, we say that, we do this. Um, and then we've got these huge problems we don't look at. On the conservative side, we say this, we say that, we do this. And we've got these huge problems that we don't look at. So for me, I think um, what I'm interested in now is, uh, yeah, I want to reach out and talk to everybody, but I want to poke holes in all of those bubbles and make us all understand that we're in this country. And whether we like each other or not, we have to figure out a way how to move forward together. And Eve, I, I know that it is something you are, in fact, passionate about, this idea of, um, of still trying to inquire across our lines. Um, and I guess I want to hear you, because why? Why, why, is it, why? why is it useful for us to inquire? I mean, just well, in the most basic sense. 
I started my journalism career as a reporter for a small newspaper in West Virginia. It's the paper that won the Pulitzer Prize um, last year for its work on uh, opioid addiction. And that marked me forever, I think, because I have, even though I left West Virginia a long time ago, I've kept in touch with many of the reporters I knew there, with many of the people I knew there, and I have watched what everybody, um, I never thought that I'd see the day when the New Yorker would do, I don't know, four or five articles on West Virginia, but I've watched over the years what's happened in that state, and it, it made me um, passionate in part about local reporting, among other things. I mean, I, I work for a national show now. It's a return trip for me to Marketplace. I worked there in the early 90s, but most of my career has been devoted to working at local stations, um, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Uh, I, I worked also in Boston for a while. And um, it's only made me think that we need more of it. I mean, one of the things I've also watched is local journalism diminished over time, you know, that the, that the papers that people knew in their communities and trusted in their communities have disappeared or have been um, picked up by national entities that don't have a local presence and a local commitment. And uh, so I feel like I need, I think there were a, a day or two where I said, has all the work I've done over the years for civil discourse and listening to people where they live and trying to figure out how we build those connections been for naught, and then I thought, get over it, just get over it, you know? This is, this is the work of our lives, and this is what we, we have to, have to do. Um, so I was marked early on uh, in, in seeing that's the direction I wanted to head in. Yeah, and so before we move into it, because I, I want to talk about facts, but before we move into that, on my sort of opening premise here of, you know, whether or not we need to reach across lines and, and in particular learn about Trump supporters um, and uh, and the communities from which they come. Is there something this for anybody that you feel like we don't know, right? So, so to challenge, I, you know, I feel like I, I know it all now. But am I being arrogant? Is there something we don't know? Uh, that I mean, we need, I, I, that we need to continue to ask. I think that as as reporters, as journalists, um, you always have to leave yourself open to learning something that you didn't know. Um, but have I heard that story before, or have, have I heard ad nauseum who the Trump voter is? Yeah, like I've, I've heard it. Um, are there things that I haven't heard? I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are. But I, I, but I feel like I've heard enough where I kind of uh, understand uh, where the fault lines lay. I, I tell you what I haven't heard enough of. I haven't heard enough of like um, the, the Clinton voters that live on the south side of Chicago. I haven't heard enough of that. I haven't heard enough of, uh, of the, uh, the voters, uh, the, the black men who decided not to vote in Milwaukee because they, they don't think that anything is gonna change. Um, I haven't heard enough stories about that. So for me, it's like, I'm good with like learning about these Trump people who, uh, who voted, but I'm also really interested in, um, in the other side that we just don't hear enough about. And the thing that like constantly gets forgotten in the coverage of like the Trump people who said this and the Hillary plane is that like actually Hillary won the popular vote. So we're ignoring the larger group of people by focusing on the smaller group of people who we need to suddenly like mythologize that these are hardworking Americans who, you know, uh, just didn't get a fair break. The, the single mother on the south side of Chicago who's working at McDonald's is a hardworking American who didn't get a break either. So for me, it's about like, can we figure out a way to, to be equitable, to like talk about these things with a full vision of like where America is today and stop 
you know, giving, because of what it all comes down to, like, you know, the, the, the elephant in the room that I think we in the media have a problem with dealing and saying outright because we're all scared of it, is saying that like America is built on the foundation of white supremacy. And if America is built on the foundation of white supremacy, then poor white working class people are suddenly where we need to focus our attention at because, well, they're more important than poor black working class or poor Latino working class or poor immigrant working class. And so as long as we continue with this frame reference of white supremacy that we all um, like you cannot be born or live in America and not be affected by it in some way in the way you vision the world. If you're not constantly checking those things and like saying, okay, wait a second, like why is it that a guy can shoot 500 people in Las Vegas and we can forget about it and not really have much conversations about it, but a guy runs over eight people, which is horrible, but suddenly like we have to crack down on everything. We're not cracking down on white men with guns. Why are we cracking down on somebody who just you, it did a horrible thing, but like there's no equity to it. There's no balance between the two. And so that's what like I'm really thinking about these days. I mean, to be fair, I, I think we, it would have been even, a year ago, uh, to even probably even in this room, uh, to have white supremacy come up in our conversation about the news probably would have oh, it free, it, shocked people, right? Like I think it has become a, a much. A, I, I a much absolutely. Part of our I, I had a, a, a interview with with somebody, and I said that um, like early on, I said something similar to that. And the editorial that revealed is like, no, we gotta cut that out because if we put that out there, that's all anybody's gonna talk about that you said that and they're not gonna focus on, on the conversation. That was about a year ago and so it got cut. Um, now I wanna- You wouldn't I, cut that now. Yeah, we, we, I, no, I wouldn't, I would argue with my boss like we're keeping it, you know? All right, so one thing that I think we, so basically we're talking about our discourse here, and one thing that we, we really need to dig into if we're going to talk about our discourse is, you know, the, the introduction of the idea of alternative facts into our lives. Um, and, you know, and the fact that the president and his surrogates have, uh, and continue to quite aggressively campaign against the work we do, um, uh, and the idea that you just can't trust us. You can't trust what you hear. And so... I, to start this part of the conversation, I want to I want to play a piece of tape. Um, you know, this week, four women uh, alleged that Republican candidate uh, for the Senate in Alabama, Roy Moore, um, that he approached them for sex as for, as they were minors. One of which says she was 14 at the time. Um, and this is how um, Steve Bannon responded to that news during a speech in um, New Hampshire that same day. So let's listen to this, and then I want to talk about it. All we have to do is give them permission to vote for you. On Billy Bush Saturday, by the way, Bill, on Saturday afternoon, on Friday afternoon when it was dropped, and I had a talk with one of the editors of the Washington Post that, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, let me see this thing, let me listen to it and verify the audio, and, you know, we'll get back to you next week. He got, okay, shipmate, it's coming out in about three minutes, and I think you'll see the audios, <laughs> the audio matches with the video. So, um, but it's interesting. The Bezos, Amazon, Washington Post, that dropped that dime on Donald Trump is the same Bezos, Amazon, Washington Post that dropped the dime this afternoon on Judge Roy Moore. Now, is that a coincidence? That's what I mean when I say opposition party, right? It's purely part of the apparatus of the Democratic Party. They don't make any bones about it. By the way, I don't mind it. 
I'm gonna call them out every day. It's n it's not a fair and free media anymore. You know, I run Breitbart. We're kind of an advocacy group in our own way, and the way that we present grassroots and present working class people and economic nationalism, we're not shy about it. You know, guys come to me for jobs and they say, oh, "I'm looking. I don't. I'm not looking to hire people who want to win Pulitzers. I'm looking for people who want to be Pulitzer." Right. I'm honestly not even sure what he means by that last part. I, I really thought about it a lot when I was like, what does he mean beep? Does he mean he wants that, like, the, is the business side of being like the Pulitzer family, or does he make it anyway? But certainly the, uh, the front of it is familiar and clear uh, that, um, you know, if you report facts that, um, news that, uh, that, that he doesn't like, that you can't trust it, and that's, that's it. Um, and that is, you know, that's the environment we're now trying to do our jobs in. And I, and I have to say, you know, and, you know I, I want to start with you on this because, you know, I've spent much of my career uh, complaining from, as a progressive journalist, about the mainstream media narrative and the stuff that you can't trust um, and ur urging people to have a critical eye on the narrative that's out there. And that is a lot of what you guys are doing at The Intercept. But it... it of course, we're now at an absurd extreme, and I don't. I, I, from where you sit, how do you, how do you, begin to challenge the mainstream narrative, while in an environment like this, in which you have someone like Steve Bannon making these kind of arguments? Um, I think the host of our show, Jeremy Scahill, who was one of the founders of the Intercept, he is not shy about any kind of media criticism, and I think he stands out as being completely uh, very ready and willing to critique MSNBC or CNN just as easily as he would critique Fox News. Um, so I think just the fact that Steve Bannon and all of the Trump cronies who are saying fake news doesn't stop our show from being critical of the media. I think it's still, it's, it's essential. And um, so making people you know, that might be considered themselves liberals, also aware of the Rachel Maddow, you know, rah, 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 Russia story, to really just think about when are we talking of things of substance? What are the facts here? What's not just speculation? So I think it's, the message is even stronger about sticking to the facts and being, you know, equal opportunity critic of um, everything in the mainstream media. Eve, how do you respond to, when you hear something like, like that tape, I just prayed of, uh, of Steve Bannon. I mean, you know, you're in an almost polar opposite kind of approach um, to the Intercept, right? Where you're at, where you guys marketplace. are marketplaces very much about the facts. Uh, um, well, we're about the economy, I, which cuts. Sorry, I, I just okay. want to, I, I, and not to imply that the Intercept <laughs> no, is no, not about not. the facts. We're about the economy, which cuts across a whole, you know, a whole, which, which creates a whole thread that cuts through many, many different areas. Um, one of the things that I'm fascinated about, maybe other people didn't focus on in that, is the way he constructs a whole institutional system. Um, I mean, he's speaking to his own audience, but the whole Bezos, Amazon, you know, sort of corporate structure that he's lining up for the conspiracy, and I find that really interesting. I mean, one of the ways that we have handled, that we have thought about and talked about um, 
all of the harassment cases is to look at some of the institutional ways in which, like how do HR func um, how do HR departments function, or how have they not functioned when it comes to harassment? What are people's rights? What should you expect? What are the costs to women who have um, either tried the sort of in-house approach and who have made their complaints outside of the system? So, to me, I look. I think it's very inter interesting that he's lining up um, in support of his view an institutional conspiracy, which I think is often a, a part of um, of his critique. Yeah, but again, that does you know I think that even in public media we say you know hey we're not corporate media we're we're not um, we're not beholden to the to to to, to pe someone who's trying to make money you know so it is um, it's I, I find it hard to figure out how to respond to it you know um, but I guess maybe another another way to come into this too is it when you're do when you're writing a story when you're editing a story you're you're thinking about the act you know the the, the tax code that you want to discuss. Do you are you thinking about Steve Bannon's audience as well? Are you are you thinking about how to deal with somebody who, with a good hunk of the of the of the populace that says I just I I I can't trust what they're going to no, say? No, I mean I don't think about any particular audience when we're putting together a story. I mean I I I think about I mean with the tax code it's actually you've got the words in front of you now. What's interesting and difficult is the sort of behavioral response that people have to tax changes, which is very complicated, or policy. I mean, the better example, to, to me, one of the things that I think we're all talking about at this Third Coast that I'm really glad to hear that wasn't true last year when I came is history. Because there's a reason we got here. And if any of you listened to the history um, presentation or have heard the Uncertain Hour, which is about uh, welfare to work, that's what I think we need to be doing more of. I mean, and I'm in today's news. I understand that this is about today, but it is, we didn't just get here. It's about right. an accumulation of facts that got us to this point. And in an economic sense, you know, that welfare to work change was not simple at all. It, it, it created the divide that we're, it helped to create the divide that we're seeing. It played out in people's lives differently depending on their race. I mean, there's a whole segment about um, black women realizing that they were getting paid less than white women in that in that series. It goes to West Virginia to talk to a woman who um, you know, we actually had started following 20 years earlier when I had been there the first time when the when the bill was actually signed into law to see how she did. I mean, that's to me what we need to be doing more of is the context and telling people how we got here. And it's so an accumulation of facts. It's not just today's facts. It's like we got here because there are many, many, many facts and many acts that got us to this place. And so thinking about, you know, even just sort of the marketplace, today's report, you know, um, are, it, how do you think about how to work in that sort of context into you know, it's a, it's a mixture. We have a half-hour show, um, so we do a lot of reporting on the day's news, but we also do try to take a step back and say, as I said, you know, when we're looking at harassment, HR departments have been around for a long time, <laughs> What? To, but apparently so has sexual harassment. What, what is the sort of institutional response been for years? Because this isn't new, right? This is not a new problem.
but there are presumably structures and institutions that have been around who are supposed to be addressing it, and clearly that hasn't happened. So I think it's those kinds of questions that can give you the depth, even if you're dealing in the context of the day's news. Mm -hmm. Al, I wonder about, um, you know, thinking about that Breitbart clip and my struggling with like, a, well, you know, part of his analysis is that we have to be skeptical of corporate media. You know, that's something he's arguing. That's something I've argued in the past. It seems like one of the things that's happened in that, in, over, in that space is sort of weaponizing nuance, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of want to ask you about that. I mean, is that, because that is a, a space that you operate in a lot is trying to... Yeah, I mean, I, I, well, I think that uh, the way nuance has been, I think that like Americans don't like nuance. Americans want a TV dinner. They want it served up. They want everything like in its per correct proportions on the proper place on the plate. And they don't want to talk about like life is messy and therefore there's nuance and things that you have to pull apart. And I think that, um, you know, a, a long time ago, a performance poet um, who has uh, passed away now, a dear friend of mine, his name was uh, Sekou Sandiata. Sekou Sandiata told me that in effect, we have broken time because we no longer have the ability to look back and see clearly. And as long as we have, time is broken, the future is uncertain and unsure. And I think that what we have to do is we have to like, well, our job as reporters, producers, hosts, radio shows, uh, whatever, is to go back, look at time, put it in context, and, and bring out the nuance. You know, I mean, like when you're talking about, um, yeah, you know, and I think you want me to talk about the Antifa stuff. Like, yeah, can you? I yeah. mean, because we have a very you, you have a lived example of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, um, you know, in, in the clashes with Antifa and um, and white supremacists or Antifa versus whoever, uh, you know, I think that the, the 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 nuance that I keep going back to is. Um, if you watch Fox News, or even if you watch a lot of mainstream news programs, the way they play Antifa is that they're just as bad as white supremacists or best, just as bad as Nazis. I mean, I have an uh, a audio clip. Let's, can we set this up? Earlier this summer when uh, there was, the, following uh, Charlottesville, there was a, another white supremacist march, um, one of the many others uh, in, in the Bay Area, uh, and Reveal covered it. Uh, and uh, Al became part of the news um, when uh, he encountered uh, an Antifa uh, group. Beat down, yeah, they were, they were beating down this guy who was, who who's, I, I wouldn't call Keith Campbell a white supremacist. I, I would say like he's on the spectrum of white supremacy, but he's not exactly a supremacist, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, they were, they were beating him up and um, I don't know, something just kicked in and I ran over and protected him. Um, and then Reveal decided... Threw your um, body on top of him and proceeded to get kicked and yeah, yourself. Yeah, um, and then Reveal decided to do a, um, an, an hour about that. So at one point I interviewed one of the guys who uh, was kicking Keith. Um, and his name is Dominic. Wish to do them harm or to cause a scene or to, to rile them up. There was no regrets. We have no regrets. The only regret I have is that I didn't pull you off so we could finish on him. And, and I say that in, in the hopes that when he gets up, if whatever damage it is or if he has to go to the hospital, that maybe he'll reevaluate what he's dedicated his life to as a 50-some-year-old man. Maybe he'll say, is this 
worth it to me, this movement that am I willing to give uh, my, my bones and my life to a movement that, that these people are calling a fascist movement? I'm willing to give my life for the anti-fascist movement. Is he willing to give his for the fascist one? So, you know, clearly in that clip um, and, and in the interview I had with Dominic, like he was very clear that he has no problems uh, with violence. I mean, he would say stuff like, you know, oh, violence is our last means. But, I, you know, that's bullshit. Like he, he likes to beat people up, um, but but do it for a good cause. Uh, so. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Dominic had, had absolutely no regrets. But I think that, you know, if, if you play that for people, um, without me giving the nuance beyond, behind it, like, it's really easy to say that, like, yeah, those guys are just as bad as the whites. Like, like the Trump, uh, like President Trump said, you know, uh, there were good people and bad people on both sides. But, you know, the nuance, which I personally don't think is a whole lot of nuance, but maybe America needs it, is that... Nazis want to exterminate different groups of people. They want to kill, we've seen what happens when white supremacy runs amok in both uh, Germany and we've seen what happens when white supremacy runs amok in America. And so for me, like equating people who want to fight against racism to people who want to annihilate different groups of people, like it's just, the two things don't compare. You know, I grew up, I'm 45 years old, I grew up in a time when like my heroes were uh, Indiana Jones. Every Indiana Jones movie, he punches a Nazi. You know, like that's what he did. Captain America, his specialty was he lived through the ice, woke up and punched Nazis. Nazis. I mean, that's what he did. So like now we're we're having this conversation about what is what is fair and what is just. And, and, and I don't, it's not that I don't think that we shouldn't be having that conversation. I just think that we should bring the nuance to it. Like, yeah, I, I, do I think that like having street brawls in the middle of the street is the way to move forward our democracy? Absolutely not. Do I think that Dominic is as bad as a group of people that don't want me in the country and you know, tell me that I should self-deport myself? Yeah, no, those two things aren't equal in my opinion. And, 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 and well, actually, I don't think it's my opinion. I think it's fact that like those two things are not equal. And so I think that as reporters and producers, like it's our job to bring that context. It's our job to remind those people like, yeah, you don't get to like say that because you, people like you exterminated you know, a, a large group of people, you know? Can, First, I, pig- can I piggyback please. on just Go one ahead. idea that was brought up about a historical context and nuance? That's a big part of what we do on Intercepted. It's not just a show that talks about the news that just happened. And so I 100% agree with both of you that that's so important to get people to look at the both the nuances of things that are happening in, in the loud cacophony of right now, but then also giving historical context. For example, um, we had an historian on the show talk about the Lincoln Brigades who went to fight fascists mm. in Spain in the early 20th century. And so talking about at what point, if you're a pacifist and you're also an anti-fascist, when, when is it okay to take up arms and fight for something? So we have a lot of discussions like that on the show. Good. One of the most moving stories I ever covered as a young journalist was a meeting between the children of Holocaust survivors and the children of Nazis. And because of my own family, I knew the Holocaust side of the story well. I did not know the children of Nazis story well. And it's, it's, it's interesting to meet the people who live with the legacy of Nazi Germany. Uh, One woman I remember very clearly whose father 
sent, she, she grew up in a death camp and her father sent people to their deaths. And she made it her mission in life to tell that story truthfully, unemotionally, to, to tell people her father was a bad man. Um, and if we're reliving history, I think it's worth finding people on both sides of the story who have to live with the legacy of what that means. Um, but in America, we don't live with the legacy of what it we means. We don't. Though. And then in, in, in America, like we are literally having fights over whether we should have idols to white supremacy in public places, you know? So like, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you on that. I think, I w actually, I would love to hear that story because I think it'd be moving. But I think in America, like, we're just, we're not even close to being there. Um, I mean, I grew up, my senior year, my parents moved from one area to another and I was supposed to go, I was supposed to graduate from Nathan Bedford Forrest High School. And I refused to do it because fuck Nathan Bedford Forrest. Like, he's the man that started the Ku Klux Klan. He committed the worst uh, mass shooting in American history. And he's just a deplorable, nasty-ass motherfucker. I'm not going, I, I didn't want my, my high school diploma saying Nathan Bedford <laughs> Nathan Forrest Bedford. on it. But the point that I'm trying to make in all of that um, is that if, if we have a school named after a mass murderer who was a traitor to this country, and if we're currently going around like debating about whether or not we should give props to these people, and, and like I hear people say shit like, you know, you can't erase the past. No, but, but the president is made to fix it. You know, that's, that's what the president is for. And so like, yeah, I don't wanna erase the past. I, I, I wanna remind people every damn day that they did this, every damn day, but I don't wanna do it by memorializing these people. You know, like they, we should be having like a truth and reconciliation moment in America where we're saying like, yeah, I don't want to forget the past. I actually want to remember the actual past. And this was fucked up. And America needs to say like, hey, it was fucked up and we can do better. But we can't do better until we actually deal with it. And so we don't do that in this country. It's interesting, just to, in journalism as, as historians, we all need to start. <laughs> we, we, start we, being we have to, because the problem is, is that like they will change the facts and, and turn it into something that it's not. Everything that you just played from Bannon was him shifting the facts and not really saying that like this wasn't true because the, the, uh, him equating like uh, uh, Washington Post playing the uh, ac uh, Hollywood Access tape, I mean, Trump said it. Like Bezos did not create that. Bezos didn't give Trump a script and say, hey, read it. No. He's a creepy motherfucker, and he said nor, it. Nor did he say, nor did he, as you point out, he did not deny the allegations against exactly. Moore. Exactly. So the point was to discredit. But them. that's how they do it, and they and they they change it. They they shift the words around. They use dog whistles. The new dog whistle that you hear is the uh, what is it? Economic nationalism. But he's only talking about economics for white people, for poor white people. So really, like that's white nationalism. So take away the economics and call it for what it is. But he won't say that. Because if he says that, then suddenly like he gets connected to all these other things, which if you guys read the report that BuzzFeed put out, like they've already connected him and Milo to all these other people, which I don't hear, like the New York Times just talked to him recently and I didn't hear them ask him like about that report. Uh, I would love to like hear him answer those questions as well. So all I'm saying is it's all connected. They're shifting the ground around us because that's what they do. That's what they've always done. Politicians on both sides, because so much of what we say right now about like, oh, Trump is bad, Trump is bad, Trump is bad. bad. I, I, I was doing stories in 2012 in the desert, uh, the Sonoran Desert in Tucson, from the people dying there, and most of them were returning because they had been um, deported from the Obama administration. So like it didn't start with Trump, 
We've been on this train for a long time. Trump has taken it to the explanation point, absolutely. But it didn't start there. And so like, we have to bring all of that into context when we're, when we're discussing these matters. Let's, I, I called for callers, so let's have them. I think we had a question here. Um, yeah, so I, I really appreciate that you brought up kind of like that nuance in terms of like how we approach coverage around um, fascists and anti-fascists, but I still see the media doing a really bad job with it. So, you know, and, and someone like myself who, you know, I actually have like tried to reorient my own work. I, and I've been doing more like anti-fascist organizing. Uh, I get really frustrated seeing um, like that's just even in like in the liberal media, it's just like thrown out. It's like, oh, these people, they, like, they just want to punch Nazis. Um, and, and there's like a conflation between like w someone who is an anti-fascist and then someone who's like in the black bloc, let's right. say, right? And it's like, I'm sure if we were to take a poll of this room, hopefully all of us would say we are anti-fascist. Although maybe, you know, it's not like a label we're going to like put on our on our sweater or whatever. I've got one on mine. Nice, me too. Um, so I, I'm just wondering like- I just think that like, I can't, I can't control how USA Today writes about it. I can't control how ABC writes about it. All I can control is like how I'm gonna talk about it. And so like, I think that like, for all of us, like when we get in those positions, it's really about like, you know, uh, standing your ground with editors and making it really clear, like, like you can't combine these two things because it's not honest and, and true. You know, the other thing is that like everybody feels like in America now, like we need to give like these Nazis like a fair shake. You know, where, where, where I interviewed Richard Spencer and he told me he's not interested in fairness. So if he's not interested in fairness, neither am I. <laughs> fair enough. Hi. Um, so I've been a professional uh, journalist for about seven years now, and we're talking about historical context. Um, one thing that has just really shocked me in the last, um, I would say, couple of years is uh, interviewing people who are saying things that are just completely factually false and, um, and, and wondering, you know, do I need to quote this person? Because <laughs> that is like a side in this issue that I'm covering. Um, and, uh, and years ago, I remember, um, I don't even know what it was that had happened, but, uh, you know, the newsroom was all, uh, seeking comment from a bunch of different people, and I had grabbed, um, Sarah Palin's comment, and I had an editor say, this was years after she ran, so I had an editor say, like, that's, we can't use that, I mean, it's like, she's not, it's nonsense. Um, and, uh, and now, um, it seems like there's, there's just a, a large part of this country that thinks in this way that as a journalist, as someone who I live and die by facts, I, I can't think any other way. When I hear something that's just completely not factual, um, do I have to represent it in, in my reporting? Um, I was out on election day last year um, interviewing voters and Trump voter um, went on and on about, you know, the Jews run the banks in this country and that's, you know, that's the problem and that's why I'm voting for Trump. And <laughs> I was like, do I quote that in a story? So I think um, in terms of when we're talking about historical context, so getting back to my point, for me, um, I've had this burning question over the last year, has there ever been a point in history when there is such a divide, not just of like political sides, but literally like people who understand facts and people who 
completely shun them. And if our job, if our job is facts, um, if our job is facts, then how do we negotiate that? And can we can we talk about the history of that? Can, so, I, can I take the last half of that question? Yeah, but let first, you guys let me the get first? the first. Let me ask Eve to do the first half of that question, right. um, and and maybe we just work our way down the panel. Um, but on the 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 live fact checking, um, uh, in particularly in a news environment, is something that has certainly occupied a lot of our time um, since the election, really starting on inauguration day, right? You right. know, um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you guys think about that at Marketplace and how you handle that, or, or, or in other sort of new well, news we, environments? Well, we, I mean, we can. We consistently point out when something is not true. Mm -hmm. Now, whether you include that tape, I, I mean, I can't really speak to what was going on, your editorial process, if it's just a question of whether we throw that on to be the other side, you know, no. Um, but I think, it, so it, it really does depend on the context of the story. Each story is different, but we make a point. And with economics, um, economics, it's pretty easy to point out what is a fact and what is not a fact. It doesn't mean people will necessarily believe you or that they'll believe the wider context, but we do feel that it's a duty to say, and we do say, that is not true. That and is I, not true. I would hope that the, the Jews are responsible for the banks thing just wouldn't make the cut, period. Unless you're like using you, it to illustrate. You right, know, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, right. that's why I would say never say never, but... Yeah. Right. But yes, as a journalist, you have to stick to the facts. <laughs> and po I mean, you can't not necessarily not use that tape, but it, you can say, look what people are thinking. And yes, have people always believed falsehoods? Yes. <laughs> I will say one thing, which is that I'm always aware of, is that we are in the continuum of history, too. So part of what we were doing, are doing, is laying down a trail that later people will be able to look back and we will not be able to escape the fact that there are people who think that and we're willing to say it in this time. And so I am aware that even though I do not have um, the big picture or the answers or a, the, as deep an understanding as I should, that part of what we're doing is laying down a marker so that in future generations people can look back and say, no, we really can't escape the fact that there were people who said things and did things in this time so that they can understand how they got where they are, so that my daughter can understand and her generation can understand how they got to wherever they're gonna wind up. The second half, Al. This isn't new. This isn't new, and if you ask any black person in this room or any person of color in this room, they'll tell you that like, you grow up in America that doesn't believe in facts that you know to be true. You know, like it, it, it comes from the foundation of this country that like the African slaves that were brought to America didn't think they should be slaves and that was true. And the rest of the world thought it was fine, you know, or, or the rest of America thought it was fine. Um, we went through a whole period in this country that we don't talk about enough where like people were being lynched and folks were sitting down having a picnic while they were being lynched. They would cut parts of, of, of the person being lynched body parts off and give them as trinkets and souvenirs. The, the, the term picnic comes from pick a nigger and hang him from a tree. Like we don't think about any of that stuff. So we've always been in this world where the, the truth is, bare to, is easy to see. It's easy to see that a black person, a Latino person, an Asian person is just as much as a human being as a white person is. But we don't deal in those facts. So it's, it's not a new thing. 
What's new maybe is that white people are feeling it in a way that they haven't felt it before. And a lot of what you feel uh, or what you hear from uh, a lot of the, because the truth of the matter that in, in America race is definitely real, but race has been used as a tool so that, you know, black people and poor whites are fighting against each other. Meanwhile, a class of people is making profit off of that and, and pinning people against each other, right? So it's like, this has been going on since the beginnings of this country. Um, and so, yeah, like we're in this place now where like everybody is seeing it because Trump is here uh, and because Trump is, is, you know, the exaggeration of it. The most mediocre shit you could get, we got. So it's, it's, it's there and it's exaggerated and you can see it, but it's always been at the base of this country. And we have to continue to remind people and talk about it and push at it. And I think that, you know, the, the first part of the answer is, I think that there, there is value in playing tape when, when they say ridiculous stuff with, like that, as long as you come behind and give context to it. You know, um, and, and for me, like when I'm interviewing somebody and they say something that is not true, I don't let it go. I will not let it go. Like, no, bro, that's not true. And we just keep going back to the facts. I interviewed Roger Stone once, and I have to say that Roger Stone, by far, is one of the smartest men that I've ever interviewed. Like, his, his knowledge is vast. Um, I mean, I think that, like, those pe people think that these people, like, uh, because you've got the president, who I think a lot of people think are, is, is dumb. Um, but it, it, it would be a mistake to think that a lot of people around him are, are, are stupid, because they're not. Roger Stone is ridiculously impressive. And when we got into our conversation, he threw facts at me so quick that I couldn't fact check him. I didn't know if it was true or not. He was coming from this deep, deep well of knowledge that I just didn't have. So I let him say it all, like I let him say it. And then when we got to stuff that I knew, like I challenged him, like we went to war over it. And then when it came to the edit, we listened to the stuff that he said. And if he said things that were truthful, they made the cut. But if he said things that weren't truthful, the idea was either we would come in and, um, and I would like break up, the, break up the interview with narration and say like, well, that's not true, or we would just cut it out. And so we decided that we would just cut because we wanted to keep it smooth. Um, but yeah, I think that you have to challenge people every step of the way, and I think that's one of the things that like drives me a little crazy when I watch some interviewers is that they allow people to say stuff that isn't true and they just let it go because they feel like they're being fair and balanced, but they're not being fair to the truth. All right, or perhaps because they don't know, you know. I mean, right. it's, it, absolutely. It, 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 this is part of the sort of journalists have to become historians things, but Lethal, I want to go back to this sort of question of nuance, and I, I feel like nuance and history come together in an important way here. In that, um, you know, as we nodded at, it's not like one of the nuances that gets lost in this moment is that the world got bad. The world got extreme for everybody on November 7th, 2016, um, and that um, everything was, you know, daisies and roses uh, up until then, uh, and that we didn't have any of the problems that we're discussing now. And uh, so first I want to play a piece of tape and then I want from, from The Intercept, um, and then I want you to talk about trying to have these kinds of conversations in, in, in this environment. Um, this is a clip with uh, Aura Bogado, who's an independent journalist who spent many years covering uh, immigration issues. You know, the architecture for all of this was certainly set up by the Obama administration. Obama, of course, introduced DACA, um, but, but even within that, 
there was this sort of narrative around the idea that some people were safe while others were not. So Obama famously uh, pushed this felons, not families narrative. He you know, went on to say that several times. But the truth is that felons um, are families. <laughs> uh, that's, that's just the truth of the matter. Felons uh, are part of families. So a lot of times you have a family where one person may be a U.S.-born citizen, another is a DACA recipient, another may be convicted of something like robbing a liquor store and so forth. That's a family. All of those people are in one family, right? Some are untouchable by ICE. Others have a sort of, at least under Obama, a temporary reprieve by DACA and, and weren't being targeted. And others were the priority, the so-called felons, right? And that framing suspends the idea that that people, human beings, regardless of their immigration status, are capable of, of redemption and rehabilitation. And that's how we got 3 million deportations under Obama, which is largely forgotten in all of this, right? There's a lot of attention under about DACA recipients, but what about their parents? What about their cousins? What about their uncles and aunts? That sort of remains to be seen, and that, I think, has a lot to do with the way that the Obama administration framed deserving immigrants versus non-deserving immigrants. It, I just don't—we're not having that kind of conversation anymore um, uh, because it just, again, getting back to weaponizing nuance, like, it just feels like there's not space to talk beyond— um, Donald Trump versus the Democratic Party or Donald Trump versus humanity. Um, how, how, do, how, how are you getting people into that? How do you get people into that space? I mean, I, I feel like a big part of the mission of our show is to get into the institutional reasons for things. Um, and so, no, we're not a, we're a talk show. We're not an on the ground. We talked earlier about Trump voters. I think what Intercepted does is look at the institutional and historical reasons for things and broadening that view, like we've been talking about, that Trump is kind of this, this new ugly face. The veil has been lifted, right? So what were all the things that led up to the situation that we're in right now? And so not being afraid to look at the Obama administration, even though he was... He may have been, I mean, I do personally believe it, I think Jeremy does too, so much better than Trump in many ways, but, <laughs> but <laughs> that's not going to stop us from looking at, you know, his role in foreign wars, his, or his administration's role in it, in, the role in, in immigration, deportations, et cetera, and going, and going beyond that. But in doing that, how, what, so how are you thinking about in terms of getting people out into a space where they can hear you and hear a nuanced conversation about immigration and deportation in an environment in which um, we have the kind of rhetoric that comes from the, the Trump White House and the, and the kind of debate over facts themselves? I guess, I mean, just sort of from a con content perspective, um, I think it's about not doing it in an overly aggressive way. We're not a show, we're not counterpoint or whatever. We don't have people shouting at each other from other points of view. We have these nuanced discussions that enter into things from an intellectual perspective um, to really, you know, make you, make you think and learn. So stepping away from the point counterpoint and the shouting yeah. about politics. And, you know, yeah. so Eve... Uh, you know, while uh, Al has literally thrown his body into the conversation over politics at one point, uh, I, I gather that your response to all of this too is that you feel like we need to actually step out of politics. Well, one of the one of the great benefits of uh, working on marketplace is that even though economics is highly political, we can take a step back from that from the fray and look at the underlying economic situation. That, as I said, with the uncertain hour, for example, looks at in its last. 
um, last year looked at how we got here. And, and yes, it's tracing welfare policy, but it really also explains a lot about the economic divide that we're in right now. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many of you have heard it. I don't want to give away the ending. But, um, <laughs> but at one point, you know, it looks at the history of block grants and how block grants enabled states to give money to people. And there's one scene where there's an, actually a, a family that earns $200,000 a year that is getting block grant money that originally, you know, in the, in the days before block grants would have been considered welfare money to help um, women feed their children. They're getting that money to help send their kids to college because of the way you know the the policy sort of played out through the block grant system. Um, so, you know, and this year we're looking at regulation. Um, the uncertain hour is taking a look at regulation on a day-to-day -day basis. We look at things like interest rates and um, you know how does that play? You know, why does that matter? The underlying economic underpinnings of what gets us to where we are. Uh, in the daily cycle as well as looking back, if that makes sense. But of sense. course, I mean, these things are deeply political. It's hard to imagine something more political than welfare reform, right? You know, in terms of how we think about each other. Right, and except that the way they, I mean, you know, the way that they, the way that these policies that sound very dry um, and that, you know, no one's eyes glaze over more than when you mention wealth, you know, political discussions around things like welfare, um, the nuance of it and the way they, or tax policy, which is what we're in right now, right? Um, but the way these things play out over time, they affect, they affect people's lives over, and for a long time to come. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but they may affect their kids and their kids' kids. I mean, we know that, right? But really documenting how that plays out, I think, is important work. Well, and I, I, and I was also trying to prod you to, to, to talk about, there's a, a piece of the uncertain hour um, that uh, I think is fabulous and, and that you've talked about in the past, that um, if we're, when, when we're talking about something like welfare reform, and I'd say, you know, you have to talk about the politics of it, but how do you get people to, um, to, to see each other, to see actual human beings in the conversation, um, which maybe this is, is just 101 old school stuff that we, that we used to do, you know, or used to take for granted. Um, but there's there's a scene in, in the uncertain hour that you that you point to, pointed to for how we can get there, how we can, as journalists, get people past the politics and to the to the humans. Can you can you talk about that? Well, one of the things that um, that we were able to do when the uncertain hour was starting was I had actually just started back at Marketplace after having been there in the mid '90s, and I was there when the welfare law was signed. I was an editor there, and we had actually done a story following two women, one from an urban environment and one from West, rural West Virginia, over the first year of um, Welfare to Work to see how they fared. It was longitudinal. And when I heard they were doing it again 20 years later, I said, oh, why don't you try and track those women down and see what happened? They weren't able to track down the woman who um, was originally from San Diego, but after a lot of work, they did track down the woman from West Virginia who um, Long story, she wound up going to North Carolina to work in a chicken factory um, once she lost her welfare benefits with her family. That was where a lot of jobs were being created. Her daughter worked in the factory. Her daughter lost a finger in the factory. Eventually, she came back to West Virginia, um, a small piece of land that she owned to this town, Kermit, West Virginia, where she um, has been making ends meet in a variety of ways. Um, but the reporter, this is, this is how you humanize the story. Um, I mean, I selected this because I think it's a small detail that the reporter noticed 
that really illuminates this woman's economic situation and also gets past a st stereotype that frankly people have of um, people who live in Appalachia and who keep things in their yards that are useful to them, that are part of their economic survival. Um, so I'll play this, this I hope is self-explanatory. Remember those aluminum cans scattered across the yard in front of Joe's house? She and her kids have been collecting them for the last two years. Springtime, it's going to be loaded up, and that probably be enough money to pay the bills a couple of months and for other things that may come up because they sell pretty good. Yeah, like how much will you get for that? Uh, well, I ain't sure, but I'm, I'm thinking there's probably six, $700 worth of cans out there. Joe used to collect the cans in big garbage containers, but... Somebody come up here and stole my container. So now to make the cans harder to steal, she just keeps them scattered across her yard. Put them on the ground. If they get them by God, they'll have to work for it. <laughs> and this is a woman who's been very resilient. Um, and in fact, many, you know, the women we spoke to across the board through this program were very resilient people who found a way um, to make things, to make ends meet, but who did not find a way in some cases because they were, because they were asked to work at any cost without getting any training or additional education to, um, to improve their economic lives considerably. There's one other line, I don't think I mentioned it yesterday, but I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think um, raises broader questions, cuts across, gets us outside of West Virginia too. Um, there's a moment where the reporter, Chrissy Clark, notices that this woman and a number of her other kids have marks on their arm and asks about that and they talk about how they one of the ways they make ends meet is to um, give plasma that that's an easy way to get cash and you then cut to an expert um, on welfare and what happened uh, after welfare changes were put in place and he said after the welfare reform act was signed the united states became the opec of plasma I mean, that line has stayed with me. We became the OPEC of plasma. So I, we, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, and, I, and now I see you want to say something in here, so I want to let you I do just that. Had a I correction. also want to like raise everyone. We want to get, start getting your questions in, so get your hands up. Somebody corrected me on Twitter and said that the, when I said uh, picnic, it wasn't to describe pick a nigger, which I'd always read, but maybe not be true. So if that's wrong, forgive me. The truth is, though, that there were plenty of towns that when they did lynch people, they had gatherings. You can go see the pictures. There's a, 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 a what do you call it, um, an online website. I, obviously, it's online if it's a website. There's a website, uh, I think it's called No Sanctuary, where you can see all the pictures of lynchings and see that like towns hung out and celebrated as they hung a black man from a tree. So the etymology of the word may be wrong, and if so, I am, I am sorry, and thank you Live fact-checking. This Live is exactly fact -checking. what we need more of. But it's and what also we like, do, you know? ex Exactly, and also like the great thing about public media is like how we own our shit, right? Like did you guys hear uh, the NPR, uh, the head of NPR on uh, All Things Considered? Whoa! It's a brilliant interview. You you would you would never hear that on Fox, right? Like, but I mean, she nobody's getting grilled on Fox about their allegations and Lord, and I don't think you'd hear it on MSNBC or anywhere else. Like Absolutely that's the not. difference between public radio, which makes me proud. So again, but, like if I've misstated, I'm sorry. All right, so let's get some questions, and we're going to try not to tell any more lies in the course of the panel. Yes. 
along this idea of um, lies and alternative facts. I'm wondering, and this might be journalism 101 question, but I wanted to get some commentary from you guys about the use of between saying facts and not factual, truth, not truth, and when you can say someone just lies. <laughs> because as, you know, because I'm not a journalist, but sometimes I know when I'm listening, I'm just thinking, he's lying. The intent is to mislead. Why can't you just say lie? But I just want to get an idea from you all about um, what's happening. And I'm going to try to get one, one response per question so we can get as many questions as possible. Who wants to take lies versus truth and calling them when you see them? I'll get in trouble if I say it, so. <laughs> we call them lies. <laughs> I, well, yes. I could play this, but it's probably longer than a couple seconds, but we, we have used the word lie. Not, I mean, I, you know, we, there's a lot of editorial that thought that goes around it. We often say this is wrong. I mean, we use a lot of different words, but. There has certainly been a, I think, ridiculous uh, soul searching. I think that, you know, I'm, there are probably many people who would disagree, soul searching around the word lie and whether or not uh, you can be inside someone's heart and mind to know whether they lied or just misspoke. Um, <laughs> and so I think every newsroom is dealing with that differently. Hi. Um, you were talking before about the idea of fake news um, and how it's like an, a structural um, critique. Um, that's and what's so frustrating about it is that it's so hard to rebut because when you try to rebut it, somebody says, "Oh, that's more fake news." Um, I'm wondering if, on the flip side, that if the white working class Trump voters, if they see another, if they see the concept of white supremacy as also a structural, impossible to rebut. Um, uh, conversation stopper. Um, and I'm wondering how you, regardless of the fact that white supremacy is true and fake news is not, the fact is they both tend to stop conversations. I'm wondering how you get past that, especially in the context of talking about nuance in what you guys do. Well, I think that like the way you, like the, if you listen to the interviews that I do with people, um, you know, I, I try to see everybody's humanity and I, and I try to come at them from a place of, of humility and, and, and thought. And I don't open up every conversation with you're a white supremacist, you know, at all. Um, so I think that like, you know, you, you have to like, with every interview you strategize, you think about like how you go in and how you're gonna get what you need to get out of it. Um, and also like I'm really clear that I want people, I wanna be sure that, I, that people understand what they're saying to me so I repeat the stuff that they've said to me over and over again. But when the opportunity comes then I speak about like what the underlying issues are and see what they have to say. But I think that the way that I go about it with people uh, ultimately like what I wanna do is I wanna put them at ease so that they know that like we can have a conversation and that I'm not going to, um, I mean like the first time I interviewed Richard Spencer like we started off cool. You know, the second time I interviewed Richard Spencer, we, we started off cool. Um, yeah, I'm gonna bring that heat, but you know, I'm gonna bring it in a way that um, I don't want to stop the conversation. Because I think so much of what you see on cable news stops the conversation and you can't get beyond uh, certain facts. But on the flip side of that, like I am, I'm not giving an inch on anybody else's humanity. I'm not giving an inch on my humanity. I'm not gonna entertain those conversations um, in a way that disrespects um, people's humanity. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to um, allow somebody to say, you know, the Jews run all the banks and not come back and say, actually, that's not true. Um, so it's like, you know, you gotta, it, it's, a, it's a fine line, and I think that everybody does it differently. I just know the way that I do it. Just on conversation stoppers versus conversation starters, Eve, uh, you, you, you've got a, a perspective on 
the sort of things we can start conversations with. Can you just very quickly um, offer that idea? Sure. Well, I think one of the things that we talked a lot about after the election was, you know, it's it's red and blue, and you know that, that the first thing we identify someone is oh, just you're a Trump voter or you're a Democrat or you're a Trump voter. And I think there are other ways. It gets back to seeing people's humanity first. Um, I mean, when I was here last year and, and I went to a table of um, reporters from red states, one of the who were saying, how do we start the conversation? I said, why don't you start it like this and I'll do it here. How many people have had somebody die recently in their family? That's a conversation. Now, it may lead you to politics, it may lead you to policy, it may lead you to other places, but it's also a way to get people to see each other's humanity. Um, you know, because we're talking here about the conversation between an interviewer and an interviewee, but there are also conversations, particularly for those of you who have talk shows or who are in communities where you can bring people together to see each other's humanity. Um, it doesn't mean you end in that place. It doesn't mean you can't walk it back to other, other questions and other issues. Um, including, you know, our healthcare system, or how did the person die? Were they shot? That gets you to a conversation about guns. Um, but that there are ways to start the conversation that can lead you to other places, but get to the humanity first, and not the and not the immediate, you know, conflict. And I'll have to say, you know, I, I was I, I have you've said this to me in the past, and I and I've been skeptical of it in my mind, but then it struck me. Uh, it, we launched a show called Indivisible at um, uh, WNYC for the first hundred days of the elect after. Of, of the Trump administration where we just opened the phones and I hosted one of the nights and I had a great deal of anxiety about it. Uh, and one of the things that we did after a few weeks, I realized thanks to uh, our, our producer Paige Cowett, um, is we started asking callers for a certain life experience. You know, so we said, we only want to hear from military families right now. Or we only want to hear from people, sometimes we, by their politics, but by their life experience. And we got these really rich conversations as a consequence. I um, mean, and I will so. say one of the things that I think is a technique that we don't use is we always think, oh, we need to get people from, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum. I actually think there are interesting conversations to be had. I mean, your DACA... Um, it's an intellectual conversation, but raises that possibility of let's talk to people on the DACA spectrum. Let's talk to people who have the same experience, but that same experience is very nuanced and can be illuminating. Um, at the OPB where I used to be, there was a very brilliant producer who produced a show called As We Are that were conversations with people who had had the same experience, but that allowed you to go very deeply into what that means. Here, please. Yeah, so I think a lot of the conversation today has been about like um, how to tell a conversation or what to choose within a, within a reporting or within a story. What about which stories we choose to tell? Because it's so often the same and there is a lot of you know, chasing the story. There's competition between news sources. There's the need to seem like you're up on everything, but then there's also the same, what's the substantive versus what's um, just kind of reporting what this person's saying that, that person's saying that. Well, what, where, you know, how do you choose stories maybe differently now? Or do you choose stories any differently now than you, than you were before you felt a heightened? Or should we be choosing your stories differently? As far as our show, which was only launched in January, I mean, I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I think a large way that we do approach stories is looking at what's happening in that past week's news, but then getting underneath it and 
to, to the why or giving the historical context. For example, when you know North Korea coming into the news more and more, we had an historian come on and talk about the history of relations between the US and North and South Korea. So things like that or, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're news driven in that way. Let's talk about what's happening right now, but let's broaden it a little bit. Um, I don't know, do but I think it's I, I think it's a good point, right? Is is we what stories are we not telling? That's part of where I was driving yeah. at with what you know what don't we know about the Trump supporter? If we're going to still ask that question, and 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 I think where Al was going with what don't we know about the South Side of Chicago right. versus what? Right, exactly. So like, no, I, I I tried to answer that to to speak to that before is that like we have to think you know, bigger in our newsrooms and not keep chasing the stories, but but I think we should keep chasing context and context will lead us in all sorts of different directions. Right. Um, so for me, like that's that's the, the, the things that, that I'm thinking about. Let's squeeze in one more. Hi, so uh, there was something that you said about being able to leave politics and that opening up new conversations. Um, and so I'm a sound artist, I'm not a journalist, and I've worked both in the States and abroad mainly about uh, disabilities like HIV and queer experiences. And those things heavily intersect with race and class. And there's something that Al said about how America isn't ready to have certain conversations about race. And I firmly believe that. Um, however, that gets a little vexing because if I go to the UK or Ireland, and I want to bring up the fact that we need to reach out to Afro women living in those countries who are migrating for health care or migrating just because it's a job market or it's where their family is, any reason, we need to reach out to them to have a conversation about disability. But then I'm told I'm just being an American and I'm just thinking about race too much. We're past that. So it feels like in some countries... They're not they're, past it. They're but not. They're, oh, they're, no, girl, they're not. They're not. Past it. I, but like... It seems like they're, they're saying that they're beyond it, and that and then I come here, and it's, we're not ready. So where is it happening and being reported? You got to do your job regardless. Like, screw them whether they're ready or not. Like, your job is to bring it to them whether they want it or not. Like, like we, ha we cannot, just because America's not ready to talk about race, the reason why we are where we are is because we haven't talked about race. You know, so therefore, like, it's our job to, to, to continue to talk about it. Let me, quick story is that, after the election, I did all of these interviews with high-profile people, and all of those interviews ended up going back to race. And my EP, who is great, uh, said to me, like, next time we do one of these conversations, let's try to, like, you know, not so much go to the race place. And I was like, no. Like, <laughs> that, is the, that, is, that, is, that is the essence of where we are. That's, that's, like, all of it. Like, race, misogyny, all of that stuff. Like, that's, it's, it's all coming out now because we have a president who has shown racist things or, 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 or act, behaved in racist ways and clearly behaved in misogynistic ways. So, like, at the top, you've got this there. So, like, it's all going to bubble up and come to the surface now. You've got to deal with it. And America doesn't want to deal with it, but our job is to say, so what? You got to deal with it. Like, this is, this is the truth. This is where it is, and I'm going to stand in that. So I, I hear what you're saying, that nobody wants to hear it. I get it. But that's exactly like that. That's that's why we're unpopular. Is because like we have to stand for the truth, regardless of what it is. So keep doing what you do, man. So history, context, talk, it's shared experiences, and check facts live is what I've heard today. Yes. We have to stop there. Um, thank you to all of our panelists for a wonderful conversation.
Okay, before we finish up, we also want to share with you the Q&A from the other presentation of this panel. Hi, I'm Trey Kay. I'm the host of the Us and Them podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. And, um, and first of all, I'm really grateful that you've noted uh, the Charleston Gazette and their Pulitzer Prize winning work. Um, I, I'm really, Al, in particular what you had to say too, one was, I, I don't know if we need to, uh, how much effort do we need to put into understanding, you know, Red America? And, I, I, and there's parts of that that troubled me by what you say about that, but there's parts of it that I, I agree with and I understand. I think we do need to understand you know, what's going on in the country as a whole. I just think that the way that we're talking about doing it now, as in like, you know, I think it's problematic, but continue, I'm sorry. Well, th thank you. Um, the, the part that, when you say that we are a nation that will not talk about race, or that it just seems to be like this, this, this subject that we will not speak about, our history with race, our history with, with white supremacy, et cetera. Um, I know in my work, that when I'm speaking with people, that seems to be just a, a wall. A wall comes up with, with people who are from the conservative part of, of our country, that, that they shut down on that issue. And I don't know how often to penetrate that, how to get beyond that. I feel that often people who come from the, pers uh, the, 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 the pr progressive perspective is that what we feel like doing is we point out, you are a racist. What you said is racist. We, we name it and we claim it. And I feel like that brings up a defensive posture. And I'm trying to figure out, is there another way around that? Is there another way around it just like naming it and saying, you know, pointing them out, calling them out? I think, I think there is. Uh, well, first of all, I believe like if someone is acting racist and, and doing racist things that like I'm going to say that's racist. Truly, but um, if it's something more but, subtle. But sure, if it's something more subtle, then, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the way I handle things, I don't think is a blueprint for anybody else to handle things. I'm just telling you like this is the way I would do it. Um, the way I do it is... is Which at I first, admire, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Um, um, the, way I, the way I approach it is, you know, I recognize that a lot of, like, I recognize that, I've, I've been to West Virginia. I, I know what the struggle is there. I know that I've, I've, I've hung out with a woman who could not um, drink her tap water or bathe her children in, in the water there, that they had to, like, get bottled water and take baths. Like, I see her struggle and I understand her, I don't understand her struggle, but I see her struggle, I'm trying to see her in it, and that gives me a whole hell of a lot of compassion when I'm talking to her. So I bring that compassion in every conversation that I have. Like, I want that person to know that I see them, I feel them, I understand it. Doesn't mean that I'm going to like be okay with the racist shit either. Like, it means that like, I'm going to like come at you and on a human level filled with compassion, but I'm also gonna point out like where there's a blind spot there. And I'm gonna do it as nicely as I possibly can. And at times I'm gonna push when I need to push as well. But I'm, I, and what I have, the line that I draw in the sand is that like I am not going to uh, compromise anybody else's humanity. Like if we're talking about trans issues, like I'm not having a conversation with you as in like I'm gonna take away a trans person's humanity. Like, like no, I'm gonna stand up for humanity. Um, but I will do that with as much compassion as I possibly can. Um, so it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, because I've had conversations with people where they just don't get it and they won't get it. 
Um, and I'm just persistent and consistent with them about it. And I'm also like, I try to be as nice as I possibly can. And I understand that like, you know, when you talk about white privilege and you're living in West Virginia and you've got to like bring jugs of water to bathe your children, it's really hard to understand how you have any kind of privilege in this world. So I recognize that. So, so if I was talking to that person, I wouldn't say white privilege. You know, I, I wouldn't even bring that up in the, in the conversation. Um, so but it's, it's about it's the people in the in the white suburbs of West Virginia that I'm talking about. That's, yeah, that's that's where I feel like it's more insidious. Absolutely, and 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 I, and and the thing that when when I'm talking to those people, like I'm kind, but I'm all, but the, so the, I, let me interrupt you out because I I sure. think um, uh, we actually have and we can we can show this what you're talking about, right? So uh, yeah, I, it, we have some audio. I'd I'd like to prompt you to play uh, that. Um, Thanks, Trey. That, uh, as m most of you, I suspect, know, uh, Al has been in the news lately, not just reading it to you, uh, after the, the, the white supremacist rally in the Bay Area that you were covering, uh, you uh, uh, found yourself in an altercation, uh, protecting one of the white supremacists who was getting beat up by Antifa. Um, someone shot a video of that. It went viral on the internet. Everyone was talking about why is Al protecting white supremacists? Uh, and he, he's, he's not a white supremacist. I would say he's on the spectrum. On the spectrum. <laughs> but, but he's already, not, you know, he's not a white supremacist. Uh, and you made, uh, and so you, you, you made a show about it. Um, and one of the conversations you had in there, I feel like, uh, speaks to this. Uh, this thing Trey's raising where you spoke with, I believe it was Joey? Yeah, Joey. Yeah, so uh, Joey, uh, Joey Gibson. So uh, there's so much like ridiculous nuance when, in, in these stories, right? So, it, so Joey Gibson was one of the guys who started the rallies. There was two, one on Friday, one on Saturday. I would not say that Joey Gibson is a white supremacist. I would say that Joey Gibson is a really naive young man who, um, who doesn't understand what white supremacy is or how it works. And so, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I think about all the time is I don't think you have to be a white supremacist to push forward white supremacy. Um, and so I would say that, like, he falls in that camp. But it, it definitely, like, the, the people that they were trying to gather were not the same people uh, that you saw in Charlottesville. Um, so there's, there's nuance there. Um, I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, but there, there is nuance there. So Joey is an interesting cat, um, and this is uh, a conversation that I had with him. I mean, it's a fact. Like, like I, I'm, not, I'm not a person that's going to run around and say the whites are victims, okay? I don't, I don't believe that. But it's, I mean, whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college. You know what I mean? There's, there's a huge problem with the way whites are being wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. wait, 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 hold on, <laughs> hold on. Whites have to pay more than blacks to go to college. Yeah, that's that's totally untrue. It's tuition and state colleges. Yes, it is. It's totally true. That's totally untrue. Can I tell you why I know that that's untrue? Why? Because like I I have a child that's black and I have a child that's white and they're both going to be paying the same thing. Like I know that for a fact. <laughs> So they can't be, that's just not true. And I don't have a child that's biracial, I have a child that's white. So I know for a fact that black people and white people are paying the same things. No, not in state colleges. I'm telling you in state colleges, please l listen to me, man. Like, uh, uh, Joe. I had to pay more because I'm Asian. Joe. <laughs> I'm telling you, Joe. Asians pay the most. 
Joe, I'm telling you, my friend, that's not true. Well, why don't we? There's no point arguing about it. Just look it up. Just no, I don't, do, do some research on it. And I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you about it because I'm telling you the facts. And you are perpetuating something that isn't true. It's built on a myth that perpetuates the idea that white people are wholesale victims in the United States. I am telling you, as somebody, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter, but I'm also uh, a parent of a black and white child, that both of those children will be paying the same thing when they go to state college because my daughter is in state college now and my son is getting ready to go to state college. So I know this for a fact. I've, I've looked at it. I'm paying this. So I know for a fact. And I know for a fact that this is how it works throughout the entire United States. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And I have to do the research. But, you know, I have and maybe I was completely wrong. But, I mean, there's no point arguing it. I'm just saying that. Joey, I just keep that. So, Al, my, I really, I mean, I was on the train listening to that, and my head exploded. Mine too. And I, I just... Do you hear the pause when he says that? Like, there's a pause where I don't say anything, because I'm just like... What? <laughs> like, I want to say, what the fuck are you talking about? But I think this is a great example of where we're at, where, we, where, 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 where we're trying to have civil discourse, right? Right. Uh, and we're trying to uh, figure out how to, how to call each other a racist or a, uh, I don't know what they would call me, I, I guess. A race hustler. A race hustler, thank you. Um, but we can't, I mean, you, you can't get past like basic stuff. No. But, the, you know, like in, in that interview, I, I was trying very hard to like hear what he had to say and be kind in how I like I like I chose my words very carefully. I was thinking about it the whole time, and like I I, I remember saying to thinking to myself, call him your friend, like like remove the anger. You know, I watch CNN every blue moon, and like I love to watch Angela Angela Rye snap on people. I love it, but I also think that like that does not help move the conversation forward. And so I could have snapped on him the way she would have, but I don't think that. Um, I don't think we would have gotten to the same place, and that's ultimately like not how I'm wired. So I just went back to like, how do I take a deep breath and walk both of us through this in a way that does not compromise what the truth is? You know, I, I, I absolutely was not going to give him any quarter on the truth um, because I, I I know it. I know it, what's true. Can we, can we like just publicly grade out here, Eve, on, by your by your standards of? Oh, uh, I, I mean, again, how, I mean, I don't think that civil discourse means you cannot stand up for facts and the truth. <laughs> right. um, that is a that is a piece of it. What we're struggling with right now is that we can't agree on the facts, right? Yes. We cannot agree on the facts. Yeah. So I it, think that you know, I mean. Part of being a journalist is you have to be scrupulous about the facts. You have to know your stuff going in. <laughs> Obviously, you do from personal experience. Um, but that's what's making, that's what I find to be completely disorienting about this time that we're in, to be quite honest, is that things that um, seem to be quite clear to many of us in terms of them being facts are simply there's an alternate universe right. out there. And, and also, like, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not saying this so much in public radio, although, like, there's a couple examples I can give, but I think I see a lot of journalists who don't follow up. They allow right. people to say these things, and they don't say, like, that's not true, that's not true, that's right. not true, and respond to the facts. And I think that, 
you know, that's part of the issue with like, what facts do we have? What is true and what isn't true? And if a journalist doesn't know it well enough to push back against it, um, then the audience walks away not quite sure what's what. I mean, you know, we've seen this happen like long before, I mean, like America's, all the troubles that America's seeing right now, like Trump is just giving fruit to what had already been planted like so long ago, right? So um, it's not like, oh my God, Donald Trump and the world is doomed. It's like we've been moving towards this trajectory for a long time. And in that period of time, like you, when you think about climate change, so many journalists have allowed people to make statements that just are not fact and been like, oh, we're trying to be impartial. And that's ridiculous. I will say that one of the, I mean, we haven't really talked about framing yet, but that economics, and since I work at Marketplace, economics actually is a pretty good frame for, for nailing facts. Yeah. Um, you know, there are ways you can choose frames climate change, maybe not among them, but where, the, where you can just say, look, this is the tax code right now that they're debating in the House and the Senate. Um, I'll give you an example of, of a way that that can actually, and I, and I don't want to monopolize it all, but that you can engage people in a kind of conversation that maybe cuts across a lot of lines using economics. Small, small piece of the tax code in the House right now is on alimony, basically saying that um, uh, payers of alimony will no longer be um, get that as a, uh, as a um, tax write-off, and that um, people who receive alimony will be able to take it as a tax write-off, which they're not able to do now. Overwhelmingly, men um, pay alimony. That's just the way it is, even though it's supposed to be according to salary. It's, not, it's no longer based on gender, um, but that's the truth. Uh, and um, overwhelmingly, women get alimony. So you look at that and you go, great, that will probably work out, you know, for the men are going to be, have to pay, are not going to be able to take that as a tax deduction anymore. Um, the women are going to be able to take it as an income tax deduction. You talk to some experts and they say, no, really what that's going to do is stop people from even wanting to give alimony anymore. I mean, and, and women inevitably, their, um, their, their, uh, Life, their lifestyle standards, their, their economic standards go down once after divorce, men's generally go up. I mean, there are all sorts of layers to it, but alimony cuts across a lot of lines, right? Cuts across race, cuts across class, cuts across geography, maybe not all religions, but it really does cut across a wide swath of people. So there's a place you can have a conversation about something that is in play right now. It's political, but you can come down on it in multiple ways. Yeah. And it's about facts. It's about a proposal you can read right in front of you. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm thinking a little bit about, I'm starting from the assumption that it makes, that it's a value to try to talk to people who otherwise wouldn't listen to you or who hadn't been listening to you. Obviously with the constraints of not doing so in a way that compromises your principles or where you step into a situation where you're not being respected. But I guess what I'm thinking a lot about is I hear a lot of stuff about discourse, conversation, civil or otherwise, which happens in the call-in show, in the green room, in an interview. But uh, what I spend all my time doing, partly because I am more of an editor than an interviewer, uh, is creating a product, not a conversation. And that product, you might have a conversation with one person on the street or two people in the green room, but that product then goes out to a million people who, and we like to talk about it, like, oh, we created a conversation with our listeners, it was bullshit. They're sitting there listening. And so I'm thinking about the product, the thing that you create, like the things you've played, like that conversation. There was a conversation now that you had with that guy, then there was a thing that you played that we all sat here and listened to. And I think the set of questions about what is effective changes 
if you focus on that product, it might be that an uncivil discourse is more effective than a civil discourse. In fact, I think that's largely what the civil rights movement was, was creating an uncivil discourse and putting it on display for America. Um, but, uh, so I guess I'm curious what you guys have to say about the product, especially if you want, if you are committed to some way talking to people who otherwise wouldn't listen to you. And I, I, my guess is, is that there's all sorts of like, maybe more specific, hopefully more helpful things that you could say about how do you start a piece? If you have an interaction like that with Joe, what's his name, where do you put it? Is it at the top or is it at the bottom? What did you sound like when you first started talking? Because my bet is that like, you make something, those people that you supposedly want to get to are shutting it off about five seconds in because you sounded like you were from the East Coast or you, or you, you said like this and then you said like that. And they're just like, oh, I'm out. So do we have to think about those kinds of things? Do we so, have to think about, um, and I'll just, I'll quickly, and I'll say this and then I'll step out and you can go. I'd like to offer a tiny, super inconsequential object lesson in this because I work for Radiolab, I'm the managing editor. And I think that about 10 years ago, Radiolab did something where it took science coverage, which sounded like, and it came in and all of a sudden there's two guys going, that, 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 you know. And so I come from a world of science education where people are terrified of science. It hits them at their core. I'm not good. I'm not smart. Other guys sitting next to me was smart and they just don't want to hear it. And as soon as they hear anything that smells like it, they turn it off. And Radiolab, whatever you want to say about it, did something in the science world where it's like people who hated science, were scared of science, for whom science was a point of deep emotional pain, started listening anyway because it sounded different, at least for the first minute. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh shit, there's science. So I, that's a totally inconsequential kind of in the moment right now, doesn't really matter, stupid kind of, but it's that kind of thing where like somehow the product has to change in a deeply fundamental way if you want that person who is not in conversation with you, but who is just sitting there listening to you to stick around. So I think we'd all say great things about Radio Lab, or I would, because they're my colleagues. Um, but I think there, I, this is a good question here, and, and you know, maybe, Lee Tall, you start with this because we're talking about, you, know, you are thinking about how do we get people to listen, how do, how do you get people to listen to what Jeremy has to say and what uh, uh, The Intercept has to say beyond um, their sort of hardcore wonky audience, how much of that is about really thinking like a producer as opposed yeah. to uh, other ways? I think in, because, you know, um, Jeremy started his career when, as an intern at Democracy Now!, but he, he didn't do radio for, for decades after that. So I think a big part of working with a new host was developing his voice, and he, he was pretty much plug and play, but I think over the months of the show, he really did, you know, he opens the show with, with an essay, and I think this um, recent season, the last couple months, he really, I think to, to Soren's point about maybe the blah, blah, blah works better, he, he's, he's, when he's a lot more impassioned, I mean, he really gets people to respond. And, and we recently started a, a Facebook group for listeners of the show, which has been really great. I mean, it's 3,000 people, and they're so, they don't hold back with their feedback. And um, right after the Las Vegas um, shooting, you know, Jeremy's essay often has been just sort of an overview of the news with some clips, whatever, but that one, he just, we used no clips. He was just so raw, he went in there and he just went off and sounded really angry, uh, just, you know, about guns. And it was so moving and so powerful. And I remember talking to, to my other producer, uncivil. yeah, after that, and, and saying, hmm, do we think, do we want to add any clips to that? And we're like, no. It was just, it was just, so yeah. that was a sort of a producer choice where it was really just coming from the gut and that made for more powerful radio. 
Other guys, and we're entering that era where we have to start getting tight with our answers. Oh, okay. I would I would agree with uh, what you said, Soren. Um, a, you know, I love Radio Lab, um, but I think the reason why Radio Lab works is because Jad and Robert are being Jad and Robert. They're doing what they do really well. I think when it comes to reveal and kind of the way that we think about the product that we're creating, like we work with the strengths. Like the the strengths is that like this is what I do and and I do it well. So like let's figure out how to package that. I think uh, where that Joey Gibson clip came from was towards the end of the interview, but the reason why it was towards the end of the interview is because we were working through the story, like, and, and that's where it came up in it. Uh, and, and also, like, we were on crazy deadlines and we just wanted to make it work. No, 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 no. I, I, right, right, right. I, I, I get it. I, to, I, to, I don't disagree with you. Um, but, so, but I guess what I would say is that, um, you know... <laughs> There are going to be people that never want to hear anything that I have to say about anything. Like, I posted this on Facebook, and one guy said, I'm not even listening to this because you describe them as right-wing and describe the other group as Antifa. Okay, dude, like, I can't, you know, I, I can't reinvent human language. I'm doing the best I can, and if that's where you are, so be it. Um, what I can do is make sure that the product uh, is as accessible as I can possibly make it. Uh, and and that it works, um, and that it, it, and it works for my boss. <laughs> like, yeah. you know. so uh, so yeah. But I, I I hear you. Like it's a it's a big question. I uh, disagree with you a little bit because when I'm listening to Jad and Robert and they're having a conversation, I feel like I'm having a conversation with them. Uh, yeah, I do. Whether the Sure, absolutely, absolutely. And, and I think that that's a good concern, but also, like, we can only control what we can control. So, I, but I hear you. So, right, I don't know. I, I don't know. So, I, one of the areas that I have always thought we don't do a very good job at, that it's the blah, blah, sort of like science, is public policy, right? What policy really means deeply in the lives of people over time? Welfare reform, NAFTA, all the things that came back, right, in this, in this election cycle, because people have long memories. They know how it affected them, even if we don't do a very good job of explaining that over time. Um, and I don't know how many of you have listened to The Uncertain Hour. It's a Marketplace's podcast that delved into um, welfare to work, which I prefer to say instead of welfare reform, um, that went back, you know, 20 years. I actually was at Marketplace when we, when that was implemented, and we started following two women then, who they later, just last year, went back and found. And I think one of the ways you get people to listen is to hear themselves. It's to hear themselves. So I'll just play a clip that I love from the Uncertain Hour um, with a woman from West Virginia who we had covered 20 years ago, and we went back to um, because it explains something that I think a lot of people who might have driven by her house, would think that woman doesn't keep a very neat yard. She's someone who um, got off of welfare reform 20 years ago and has had to figure out how to survive on and off um, in a variety of ways, but small illustrative clip if I can play it. Remember those aluminum cans scattered across the yard in front of Joe's house? She and her kids have been collecting them for the last two years. Springtime, it's gonna be loaded up. And that probably be enough money to pay the bills a couple of months and for other things that may come up because they sell pretty good. Yeah, like how much will you get for that? Uh, well, I ain't sure, but I'm, 
I'm thinking there's probably six, $700 worth of cans out there. Joe used to collect the cans in big garbage containers, but... Somebody come up here and stole my container. So now to make the cans harder to steal, she just keeps them scattered across her yard. Put them on the ground. If they get them by God, they'll have to work for it. <laughs> One of the first things I remember somebody telling me when I went as a reporter from outside West Virginia to West Virginia was, people think we keep messy yards because we have cars, old cars, and old refrigerators. They said, we use those parts. We need them. You know, I mine those for parts. I care about how my yard works, but that's how I get by sometimes is because I don't have to go to the store and I can use those parts. And I thought the reporter did a great job of, just as Chad was saying, finding that moment, that detail that she noticed and following through on it. And so there are probably a lot of people who heard in that voice something that they understand. Well, it's the classic show, don't tell, right? You know, um, that, uh, because I can hear, I, you know, I, I live in East New York, Brooklyn, the opposite of West Virginia, and I, there, can collecting's a big part of it, and it becomes, there's a lot of people who collect cans. And, uh, and, and I have talked to some neighbors who are like, oh, they're filthy, you know, same conversation. But once they learn, well, actually this is, people do things for a reason. This is the, there's a logic to what we all do. Um, and the more you can uh, use those, the, show people folks logic, the more people can connect to it. I think that since we're, up, since we're using Radiolab as our, our, uh, <laughs> as our, our test here, I think that is actually the kind of thing Jad's talking about um, in his uh, presentation this morning around the uh, little shit. You know, if you can explain people's little shit in their lives, it explains a lot about yeah. the world we live in. Okay, we're gonna just, we're, we're just gonna do questions from here because we're getting short on time. Okay, I'm Cass Harrington calling from Peoria, Illinois. Um, and this has been really helpful. It's touched on a lot of the feelings that I've had this past year, but what I'm struggling with the most as a reporter in a small community, two people in a newsroom, is I deal with facts. And I have, I have the compassion, I have compassion to the nth degree, uh, especially when I'm living in a community that I'm entrenched in. Um, but getting people on the same understanding has been so challenging, whether that is transgender issues. I did a story about transgender healthcare and just getting to get people on the point to understand that non-conforming individuals exist you know, that I, under, I imagine just turned people off right away. Um, so I guess just how, how to still do what we do with facts uh, without, you know, turning people off who aren't interested, who aren't listening or, you know, don't believe it. And who have, you know, very specifically are in an environment in which facts, your delivery of the facts are in question. I mean, I think... Uh, uh, Steve Bannon just yesterday, um, in reaction to the, Roy Moore, the news that Roy Moore um, has been, uh, there are four women who accuse him of approaching them for sex as minors. Uh, his remark was, well, this comes from the same Amazon, Bezos, Washington Post that the Hollywood, uh, Access Hollywood tapes came from. So that in one fell swoop, it just sort of did, for, for the folks who are listening, this gets rid of both the messenger and the, the content. And I think maybe Eve, because you are, in, in terms of working in the same, the kind of world Cass is working in, you might have the most specific advice for her. In terms there might of be others in the room who have more advice too. Look, first, you're not gonna connect with everybody on every topic that you do. 
But the underlying truth in this country is that people on some level know the truth. They know that there are people living in their communities who are non-conforming. Maybe they're non-conforming and they just did not live in an era when that was even a thing that you thought about. They know corruption, honestly. They know harassment. There are women all over this country who know harassment, right? They know how it works. And the, the question is, how do you dig under and get them to talk first about their experience and then work from there. I mean, obviously, with some communities where, like a trans community that is on the surface such a minority community, it's harder. The other thing that people know is they know their economic history. I mean, I live in Oregon where the way they handled um, you know, the whole question of race for a long time was to ban African Americans from coming to our state. That was on, that was on the books. But there is an economic history in my state that is tied, for instance, to Chinese labor and the railroads. I mean, you couldn't have built that state without railroads and without Chinese labor. And there are vestiges of it. There's an, there's an old apothecary, Chinese apothecary, that they've just turned into a museum. But the reality of, of what you know, who did the work, who did the work to bring us where we are now? History, I think, is just our to, friend. To, sorry, just to bring you in a little bit on it because we are getting short on time. Is but but really in the doing, right? Like these, are, you know, like in the doing. I'm sitting down to produce a story or I'm pitching a story. You know, is it just that? Like, look, not everybody's going to believe this. That's the end of it. You know. I just think that you have to speak the truth. Period. Point yeah. blank. You yeah. speak the truth. You stand in your truth, and you keep it moving because there are going to be people who disagree with you. I don't know if I agree with that, 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 ev that everybody has a truth. If if every, or if everybody does know the truth, then America has a huge issue with cognitive dissonance, that we may know the truth, but we will never deal with it. And that's maybe what I'm, you're, you right. said it much more eloquently and, and, than I have. I think on some deep level, sure, people know they, it they, and don't pay attention they, to they, it. They, they, they know it, but to maintain the illusion of their lives, we all maintain illusions in our lives to keep us going. Because let's be just really honest, like the world can be a shit place. And so to get through it, sometimes you have to believe shit that may not be true. And there are so many people who believe stuff that is not true. Uh, and we all do it in our personal life in some kind of way, All of, every single one of us. So I'm not in judgment of anybody who can't deal with the truth. I understand that they can't deal with the truth. But I also understand that the work that I do just has to stand in that truth. And whether or not they can get to it, I'm sorry. I want to build bridges and I want to you know, create ladders and let them get to it, but it's on them. They have to decide whether they want to take that risk or not. As long as at the end of the day, I go home and I know that I stood for that trans person and I did the story that spoke to them, my conscience is clean. Ultimately, and so I'm saying walk in that direction. Walk to the truth, fuck everything else. <laughs> the, the bottom line job description is, tell the, is to be truth tellers, right? Hi. Um, I'm Posey Gruner. I work at KUOW in Seattle. Um, our station recently got themselves into a lot of trouble. Um, one of our hosts, uh, well, I'll just sum up the situation with a headline from the local paper, which is um, KUOW talked to a Nazi and people hate it. Um, local people of color who are sort of media types were saying on Twitter, like, if KUOW calls you for their apology tour, don't pick up the phone. Um, sort of a big deal. The way that we got into this situation is... Um, a guy walked around downtown Seattle wearing a Nazi armband. And he got um, knocked out, right? Yeah, and he got knocked out, exactly. Um, and so we did that story, and then the guy himself called in and said, like, hey, that was me. Um, 
And so our host decided, well, we talked to everybody, so we'll talk to this guy, um, talk to him, couple problems, um, gave him anonymity, basically, um, which was the big one. And so I guess my question is, uh, do you see a way where that could have been done well? If so, what was it? Very tight answers, please. <laughs> yeah. Everybody up here is a radio professional. You have you just, all hit a post. You, just, you, just, you said do it shortly, and I don't know how to do it shortly. So I, I would say I, I didn't hear the interview, so I, I can't judge like what the host did or what the host didn't do. Uh, I think an- anonymity is obviously a problem. Um, like if you are willing to walk around Seattle with a Nazi emblem, then you should be willing to be called out and also willing to be punched. I grew up in an age where Captain America was a big deal and his specialty was punching Nazis. So, you know, I, 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 I but, but if I was the host, um, I would be grilling that guy. And I, I do think that like it, it you know, when I re- interviewed Richard Spencer the second time, the first time I interviewed him was right at the end, after the election. The second time, uh, one of our reporters found out that his family owns cotton farms, and we just could not stay away from the ridiculousness of that. So we interviewed him, and this was after he'd been punched. And all he wanted to talk about was him getting punched. And I refused to have that conversation. I was like, yeah, okay, good, keep going. And all of that got cut out of the interview because like, I don't care that you got punched. You're walking around, basically advocating genocide. You, you are advocating genocide. You know, he says that like, okay, so I just want people to uh, uh, self-leave. Uh, and like, no, nobody is self-leaving America. So basically, to get this ethnostate, you're going to have to get rid of people. Um, so my thing is like, you know, if you're advocating genocide and somebody punches you, I'm sorry, but you shouldn't advocate genocide. Um, so for, for me, like, I think if I was the host on that, like, I would, I would grill that dude, you know, and I wouldn't give him anonymity. Like, if that's what you want to do, then, then so be it. And I, and I think that, you know, I, I heard a lot of the same, the same, actually, like, in Seattle, I got a ton of emails from people in Seattle pissed off that we had Richard Spencer on. And I, I hear it, and, uh, and actually, last time I was in Chicago, I talked to a young man who was mad at me that I had Richard Spencer on. And I listened to him, and I said, like, I hear you, man. Like, I get it. I, I totally get it. I understand where you're at on it. I, I see it differently, but I totally understand where you are. Um, if you are constantly pushing him and um, exposing his nonsense, then I don't think that's giving him a platform. If you're sitting back and letting him say whatever he wants to say, um, and you're not pushing against that, then you're giving him a platform. That's my basic thought. And the other thing is that like we, uh, the reason why we had Richard Spencer on in the beginning is because he was in a position to influence policy. That was our number one reason. The reason why we went to uh, Roger Stone influences policy. Gorka influences policy. I'm not having Ann Coulter on my air because she's irrelevant. She doesn't influence policy. I'm not talking to Tommy Loren because she's irrelevant. She doesn't influence policy. So those are like the, the hard decisions that we make in our newsroom. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant to judge what anybody else does in, in, in their newsroom. We are unfortunately going to have to leave it at that. Thank you to Al Letson, <laughs> Lita Malad, and Eve Epstein. <laughs> Thank you, Kai. Thank you, everybody.